You ready? Showtime. On May 3rd, summer starts with the fall guy. What are you doing later? Let's drink a spicy margarita. Make some bad decisions. Yes. Audiences are falling in love with the most entertaining film of the year. Fall guy. Fall guy. Fall guy. That's what the poster said. See Ryan Gosling and Emily Blunt in the movie critics say exists to make you happy. Trying to make it out? Nope. Because I don't either. It's not what I'm into right now. What are you into? Talking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the Fall Guy. Only in theaters May 3rd. Read it PG-13. here on Westwood One, and of course the man of the hour is with us, the Hall of Famer himself, the founder of the Four Horsemen, the enforcer in fact, Double A, Arn Anderson. Arn, how are you man? Hey Conrad, it is the holiday season, can you feel it? Yeah, ready or not man, here it comes, we are knee deep into December, and uh, we appreciate everybody coming along for our ride, and of course once upon a time... This time of year meant it was Starcade season. So we're going to get in our Wayback Machine and talk about Arn's very first Starcade. Starcade 85, the gathering, took place on November 28th at the Greensboro Coliseum in North Carolina and from the Omni in Atlanta, Georgia. Can you believe? I mean, this is unbelievable, but can you believe this was 35 years ago? You know, just about every day, something will come up and it's not even things of this, this worthiness to remember and go back in your head and you just go, God, can you believe it was that many years ago and 35, wow, unbelievable. I mean, technically 34, but come on, I'm rounding close enough for government work. Uh, the Greensboro show, the home of Starcade has a $307,000 gate, 16,000 folks there. Of course, it's a sellout. Atlanta, also huge crowd, $16,285,000. Now, this is the first time they've done this. Of course, this is the third Starcade. And let's keep in mind, this is way before WrestleMania three. The first WrestleMania was 85, but this is the first Starcade. And they're running two venues, two sold out houses, two incredible gates. I mean, have you ever been a part of something this big at this point in your career? I mean, this is by far the biggest show you'd ever been on, right? God, no, just the magnitude of, of what was going on that you had Atlanta sold out and you had Greensboro sold out and you had enough talent on that crew, uh, in its entirety, to sell out two two cities like that is just mind-boggling. The uh, total gate of both live arenas uh, is uh, nine hundred and thirty-six thousand dollars, and of course we've got uh, closed circuit television showing this. This is before pay-per-view. Uh, it's it's really pretty remarkable when you think about it because mid-south has starcade 85 on closed circuit in the superdome so you can actually attend the superdome and watch the show on the big screen 
but also that night, Jake Roberts is going to be in action wrestling. Lord humongous, Butch Reed and Jim Duggan are going to take on Dick Slater and Buzz Sawyer. So there was something for the live crowd at the Superdome as well. The infancy of, of pay-per-view here. Did you ever see wrestling on closed circuit? No, God, no. I would seen it like everybody else. You go down to an arena and, uh, you know, you had a live event and, uh, you had about a two and a half hour show and or three hours sometimes. And that was it. You'd see it on TV syndication in the morning and cable in the evening. And that was it. It's such an incredible thing to go back and look at because, you know, for better or worse, most people consider Vince McMahon sort of the godfather of pay-per-view, but Jim Crockett promotions is actually doing closed circuit television viewing for their pay-per-views before Vince McMahon, you know, this is before WrestleMania two, which took place in three cities. Uh, well, here we are at Starcade. They're doing two cities and this is before WrestleMania two had closed circuit. We've got closed circuit here for Starcade 85. Do you think it's, you know, obviously the, uh, to the victor go the spoils or whatever that slogan is or that catchphrase. It's a little, um, I don't know, unfair that Jim Crockett doesn't get credit for some of this because in the end, everybody's just going to say, Oh, Vince McMahon, such an innovator, but Jim Crockett was a hell of an innovator as well. Well, yeah, he was. And he had the, at that time, he had the tools to be leading, you know, the industry. I think he got in over his head. He had a vision for one one thing, you know, closed circuit. And, uh, you know, you go back now and we're all Monday morning quarterbacks. We're always going to say that. That's an old cliche that makes you want to puke every time somebody says it. But it's true. Can you imagine if the guys they already had in mind that were going to be their stars and you had a pretty good grip on it by then, if that that or both of those arenas were loaded down with marketing, what if Conrad Thompson would have had the marketing on those two shows? Can you imagine the revenue would have been brought in that night? Well, that's quite the compliment. Um, you know, it's a different time, of course. This is pre almost anything, pre cell phone, certainly pre podcast, pre internet. I mean, this is a different time and place, but this wrestling program that Jim Crockett had put together as getting people to not just come out to the arena to watch it, but getting people to go to the arena, to watch it on a big screen, like you're going to the movie theater. It's, it's pretty remarkable. And they're doing this, this big event, not just in one city, but across two cities, it's just unheard of. And I'm sure a lot of our younger listeners who were, you know, say uh, younger than 30 have no idea what closed circuit television even is, but it's just really remarkable what they were able to put together that you wrestled on the, um, the Omni version of the show in Atlanta. what do you think of the concept? One show in Greensboro, one in Atlanta. Well, it was, you know, innovative for lack of a better term. I don't, I don't, nothing comes to mind that would cover the grand scale that we're talking about and, and flip flopping back and forth from a live event in those cities to go to closed circuit and then rotate back, I believe is the way they did it. And they just bounced back and forth between the two venues. So you got, 
an unbelievable card, uh, unbe- unbelievable show, and just, uh, like I said, the whole magnitude of it was just pretty overwhelming. Well, you know, we're still in the infancy, really, of Starcade. This is only the third one. Did not, did it already have a big name, you know, sort of cachet? Like, did that name, Starcade, already carry a lot of weight with you? Not with me. I didn't know what that meant. Um, right away from your first Greensboro show on, you knew that Greensboro was a special place. For me, the Omni in Atlanta was the Holy Grail growing up in Rome, Georgia. You know, my dream was always to go down to a wrestling event at the Omni. And then, you know, as I broke in the business, obviously that transferred to God. You think I'm saying to myself, think you'll ever get to wrestle in the Omni. Nah, God, that's, that's expecting too much. And this is all a conversation within my own head. Um, so, to get to Greensboro and just see the temperament of those wrestling fans. And there's just something about that Greensboro Coliseum. It just has that special ambiance and it's a special venue, mostly because the fans and they're just rabid wrestling fans that know what they want. They know the stories. They understand what's going on on TV. They have their favorites. They have the guys that they're wanting to kill. It was, uh, just a great environment all the way around. You hear people talk about, you know, sort of the way you talked about there, about the Omni, about Madison square garden. Was this your Madison square garden? You know, because Mick Foley has told a similar story to that, but Mick Foley grew up in the Northeast. You grew up in the South. It sounds like in your opinion, or, you know, based on the way you told it, you know, the Omni is sort of your MSG. Sure it is. It's exactly what it is. And I think if you ask John Cena or Mick Foley or or Triple H, any of those guys that were born and bred and raised in the Northeast was not about NWA. It never was, never will be in their minds. They wanted to go to the WWF. They wanted to wrestle Madison Square Garden. That was their holy grail. And countless other guys that were born and raised in the Northeast. It was, even though the product started to cross brand when cable was available and those shows were basically both shows were everywhere that you turn, you know, went, you could get that programming. Uh, but for me, it was like being a Georgia boy, it was the Omni. That was it. That was the deal. Let's talk about you know, big show day here, you know, this is, uh, a wrestling tradition at this point, you know, wrestling around Thanksgiving in or on Thanksgiving. And this is, uh, you know, not too terribly long into your wrestling career. What's a typical show day. Like, you know, that day you, you, you wake up in Rome, I assume, or, or where are you living at this point? No, um, I was already, I, Real briefly, um, I went to Crockett in March the 5th. I started of 1985. I was there a couple months, a few months. We were sent down to Georgia. We were brought back for the big summer show at the Charlotte Outdoor Memorial um, Stadium. 
and I was back in Charlotte there. So I would have woke up in Charlotte. Uh, we would have made the trip down to Atlanta for that show, but I was living back in Charlotte at that time. So, you know, this is a Thanksgiving show. You're not in Rome to, to do any sort of Thanksgiving with the fam or at that point, had you already gotten used to sort of the Thanksgiving tradition? Well, I'm, yeah, I'm sure that we had a show somewhere, um, around Charlotte the night before Thanksgiving, that would have just been a, a get up in the morning and early and just drive down there, do the show. And then depending on where the next night was, I mean, it wasn't like you built to this big show and then you had a day or two off and to collect yourself, you just kept trudging forward and kept plowing forward and business was on fire and when those arenas are full you don't stop to think hey when was the last time i had a day off right you didn't want it you don't want a day off let's talk about you know since we've we've set the stage a little bit for you know you joining jim crockett promotions we haven't spent a ton of time on your time in jim crockett i'm sure we're going to you know break down every aspect of your career uh, as part of Jim Crockett, but I guess I just want to sort of touch on the high points at this point. I, I guess you've been with the company for about a year. Is that right? Started March the 5th, 1985. So we're several months in at this point. Are you starting to settle in to your, your tag team and your partnership and your just real life relationship with Oli? Yeah, I tell you. You can back up. There's, I told a story early on in our podcast deal about what ifs and Matt Bourne getting fired. And had he not gotten fired, Ole might not have went out and researched and found the Road Warriors at that time. And that was one of those questions where you went, wow, what if? There was a what if here and going to just because of the relevancy of we're talking about Greensboro and we're talking about Starcade. The very first, I hadn't been to working for Crockett very long and I can't remember, but it wasn't very long. And I was on my first, that was actually my first Greensboro house show, but it was pretty full and it was a lot of money. I want to say it was 300 plus grand. Hadn't been there that long. Hadn't really got the horse. This was pre-horseman, pre-all that. And I want to say it was probably maybe a month to six weeks after I'd been there. But I got my payoff for that show. And I usually don't discuss money because of the irrelevancy of what it was a long time ago, but this is one of those what ifs. My last week wrestling for Bob Armstrong and the Fullers, there was two ways you could go in those days a promoter would do when you were leaving, when you'd put your notice in. They would either screw you on the way out because they had two weeks, you know, of your money backed up. You didn't get paid for two weeks. So after you left, you got like two checks or the ones that wanted to leave a favorable impression, like the Fullers and Bob Armstrong, would give you a really good payoff on the way out. So had the best uh, 
pay off of the entire 14 months that I'd had in Pensacola was my vet last check. So they left a huge positive feel good, you know, about their company. Well, I get my check and I'm looking at this and it was less than my last week uh, for the Fullers. And I go, this can't be right. There's no way this can be right. So I went into Jim Crockett, which I had never done. And, you know, <clears throat> after I'd been in the business a little longer and had a family to worry about, let's just say my ball shrunk up a little bit. But I had a set at that point in time. And I went in and went, hey, this is ridiculous. That Greensboro show was 300 and something thousand dollars. What kind of, what kind of payoff is this? Oh, well, Arn, you weren't, uh, you're not positioned where we want you yet. We have big plans for you and all that. I said, listen, if you got big plans for me, which you just said, pay me like a guy that you got plans for. Well, you know, in that position, I think I was second match of the night, maybe wrestling Sam Houston or something like that. He said, well, you know, that's, that's what that pays in that slot. I said, let me ask you something. If I was a blackjack mulligan and walked in here, would you say that to him if you had him in the second match? Well, Jimmy got flustered. And in the back of my head, I'm thinking, I'll just go call Bob and I'll just go back to Pensacola. Because at that point in time, we were driving a bunch and uh, I've been on some really bad houses. So wasn't in the best of moods and we finally get some some light at the end of the tunnel you've got a huge house out here and i'll just go ahead and tell you it was a 700 dollars payoff that may sound like a lot of money back then but not for the conversation i'd had with dusty and jimmy crockett and where we were heading and all these different things and all the miles i was putting in and having rotten i, I get it when you got a rotten house you got a nine thousand dollar house you get a get paid on that. It's not very good. So that's another one of those that had that conversation have went any further south. I was prepared just to go pack my car up and head back to Pensacola, give Bob a call and say, Hey, can you take me back? And I'm sure he would have. And I actually called him and he said, well, sure, but you ought to give him a chance. You know, he gave me some good advice and, you know, but if not, if you need to play, you've always got a place here. This is a long story short, but it was one of those what ifs that had I left, not being there to be part of that group and name them, you might not have had a four horsemen. Food for thought. Well, thank you for sharing that. That's certainly a story I'd never heard. I don't think you've probably ever even told that story publicly, have you? Well, I never discussed payoffs and I didn't, it's none of my business what anybody else makes. Right. I never asked. Nobody ever asked me. You just don't do that in this business. It's just not in good taste. But I thought the relevancy of where it started with Jim Crockett and where it ended and the evolution of all that was, for me, that was as important as being on Starcade. How did I get there? And what did I have to do to qualify myself to be in a feature spot on on future Starcades, and I just thought it was part of the story. So I know it was long-winded. I apologize to the no. listening audience and apologize to you. No, not at all. Listen, that's what we're here for, man. We want your stories and, and nobody's giving us that type of insight, but you, I mean, I got to know though, did he make it right? He did not make it right. It stuck. But what I saw was 
a gradual uh, escalation in my opponents, and I saw a gradual escalation in my payoffs. Because in those days, you would have normally just, you know, gotten fired. Jimmy Crockett would have just said, oh, that doesn't work for you. Well, how does this work for you? You finish up tonight. Could have very easily went that way, one way or the other. You know, he had all the power, not me. The difference was I was 25, 26 years old. Whatever I was, I didn't have any wife. I didn't have any kids, and I didn't give a shit. There was probably 15 places to work at that time. And I was gung-ho, and, I, you know, I got to a big territory. After now, I had worked for Watts. I had worked for Ole. I had worked for uh, Continental. And uh, I had some seasoning behind myself. I was confident in my promos. I was confident in my ability to work at that time, three years in or whatever I was. And it takes a little longer than that, but you couldn't tell me that at the time. I was I thought I had her down, and uh, I did have it down enough to at least bluff my way through a, a conversation with that with Jimmy Crockett at that time. So you know I was, you know, and I think he sensed that because there wasn't any poor, poor, pitiful me. It was hey, this is bullshit. You know, I heard what the house was. I know enough about the business now that it warrants a little bigger payoff than than what I got, but he did not make it right. So there's another time it wasn't made right. <clears throat> Talk to me a little bit about Oli's position within the organization. You know, I think a lot of our listeners sometimes confuse Georgia championship wrestling and Jim Crockett promotions because they were both on TBS. Talk to us a little bit about what Oli's position was within the company. Well, they went to Oli. And, you know, they said, you know, this was all a shoot. We got a kid down here, you know, he's in Anderson. Apparently we, we got a little bit of the background on that. We understand you gave him his name and all that. Well, Oli didn't even remember that, you know, Oli owned Georgia championship wrestling, which he purchased from Jim Barnett. So. His last history in the business was being the boss, being the booker, being a top guy, and all that that entails as far as payoffs and, and financial reward and all those things. So they said, hey, you might want to watch the show because he had removed himself from the business entirely. You know, but, you know, that kid that you gave a name to and he told Oli will tell you the story. Hey, I don't even remember that. Well, let's see. So he watched the show and he went, damn, that kid's gotten a lot better apparently because, you know, I didn't remember him, but there's some potential there. And they said, would you like to come back and work some? Well, Oli was holding all the cards. Oli's a wealthy man. You know, he's definitely wealthy at that time. And, you know, they were asking him. He didn't need them. They needed him. And uh, would you be interested in doing some tags? So he agreed to it, and uh, Oli came in holding all the cards. And they they were trying to expand already with uh, to go back and run Oli's old territory, which was Georgia. And then they would run tours up in Ohio, West Virginia, and it was a separate territory. You'd go up there once or twice a month, and then you would run the Georgia towns. And uh, Oli was very familiar with it, so they sent us down and put us in an angle with Manny Fernandez and Thunderbolt Patterson to try to, and they put us on top down there. And 
I think Dick Slater was the resident booker or at least carrier of the information at the time. So they were already trying to expand and revive Ole's old territory. Okay, Aaron, we've got to run a timeout right now to talk about something that has been very, very important in your life. And we've talked about it a lot here on the show. We're talking about life insurance. And I know it's not something everybody talks about because maybe you're not even thinking about it because you're doing everything for your health right right now, right? So you're working out and you're changing up your diet and you're trying to be good and you're eating clean. But if you haven't planned for the what ifs of tomorrow, man, it's time you do. But here's the problem with that. Historically and rather ironically, the health conscious have overpaid and subsidized those who are less health conscious. Now, this is not some weird conspiracy. It's just how insurance works until now. Introducing Health IQ. You see, Health IQ uses both science and data to secure the lowest rates for people like you on their life insurance. Maybe you're a cyclist or a runner. Maybe you're some type of athlete or you're in a CrossFit. Maybe you're a vegan or vegetarian. You deserve to be rewarded for your hard work with more affordable life insurance rates. And how about this? Health IQ can save you up to 41% because physically active people have significantly lower risk for stuff like heart disease or diabetes or cancer. And by the way, Health IQ is not uh, some sort of lead generator. They're actually going to help take the customer through the entire process of applying. And then the policy is underwritten by one of our top insurance partners. But here's the deal. The savings, well, that's exclusive to Health IQ. You won't find these deals anywhere else. You must qualify to get a special rate. Now, to see if you qualify, go to healthiq.com forward slash ARN to take the proprietary Health IQ quiz. Depending upon your score, as well as other related qualifying factors, you can save up to 41% on your life insurance premiums compared to your other providers. Again, that's healthiq.com slash ARN and let them know we sent you and start the process with the Health IQ quiz. There's no commitment, and you'll learn even more about potential opportunities to be rewarded for your commitment to living healthy. One more time, that's healthiq.com forward slash ARN. Let's uh, let's talk about you know your time on the road you know, as we lead up to this show. Um, are you, are you riding with Holy, you know, town to town or, or, you know, is he at a different level? So you're riding with somebody else. I mean, it, he is your partner and we wrestling fans have been led to believe that a lot of the guys who work together, ride together. Was that the case for you here as well? For the Georgia towns. Um, and I had moved back to Rome, which was, you know, I, I could have moved to Atlanta, but I could stay at my granny's for nothing. So I went back to Rome and, uh, so Ole on the Georgia towns obviously would make them out of his house, which was down in Atlanta and I would make them out of Rome. So we didn't travel together, but when we went on tour up to Ohio and West Virginia and all that, we would fly into Columbus, get a rent a car ride together and make the, make the loop. So half and half we were traveling together. Let's, uh, let's recap sort of what you're doing on the road here. Um, we did talk a little bit about, you know, what you were doing in terms of you were working shows and you weren't, you know, just waking up in your hometown for Thanksgiving on the 14th, you're in Columbia, South Carolina at the township auditorium. Of course, you're, uh, in a multi-man tag team here, Tully Blanchard, Ole Anderson, and Arn answer Arn Anderson taking on dusty Magnum and Billy Jack the very next day, 
you're in Charleston, South Carolina, the same matchup, except this time Tully's out and Ric Flair's in the very next day. Uh, you're going to be uh, working a shot, um, with, uh, a spot where you're again, teaming with Ole and Ric Flair, but this time you've got Terry Taylor, um, Pez Watley and Ron Garvin as your opponent. Two days later, you're down in Memphis. This time it's a bunkhouse match and Jerry Lawler's involved. Uh, 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 the day after that, or two days later, rather you're back in South Carolina, Greenwood, South Carolina. Uh, once again, a big multi-man match here. Two days after that, you're in North Carolina and Raleigh and you're working with, uh, dusty roads straight up. Um, two days after that, you're in West Virginia. And this time you're, uh, teaming with Ric Flair to take on dusty and Magnum. The very next day you're working against dusty and the road warriors. This time you're teaming with Ole and Ric Flair. Uh, to uh, the very next day you're in Baltimore, Maryland, again, dusty and the road warriors on one side, this time, uh, Tully Blanchard, Ole and Arn on the other, the following day back in Fayetteville, North Carolina. And then uh, two days after that, it's just November 27th. So the day before Starcade, you're not in the Carolinas. You're actually in Miami, Florida, which is pretty remarkable when you think about it. It's Dusty Rhodes, Magnum TA, and Wahoo McDaniel taking on Ric Flair, Ole, and Arn. And that's November 27th at Convention Hall for um, Championship Wrestling from Florida. And the next day, it's Starcade. So you're a road warrior, to say the least, including you know on the, on the two-week lead-up here, all over the South Carolina market, all over North Carolina, West Virginia, Baltimore, Miami, and now you're here for the big show Starcade 85. Um, the schedule at this point got to be more grueling than what you were used to when, when you were working in, you know, the, the Pensacola market, because they're not all just local drives. You're sort of bouncing around, but a long haul like that from Miami to Atlanta, you're not making that by car, right? Does Crockett have a plane by this point or are you flying commercial or what's that look like? I think that would have probably still been commercial. And um, that would have been you wake up after the Miami show. The difference would have been you wouldn't have had a 6 a.m. flight. You wouldn't have had a ticket that was virtually worthless if you missed that flight. You would have probably had a, let's just say, a 10 o'clock in the morning, maybe 10, 11 o'clock with a backup or two. And, uh, you know, you'd have got up mid-morning. We would have flown to Atlanta, got to rent a car, went to the gym. You'd be surprised the difference in having an 11 o'clock flight in the morning and having a 6 a.m., especially when you're on last and you don't get in your bed until 1 o'clock, and now you got to try to wind down. You know in your head you got, okay, I got 1 to 4 to sleep. If I get to sleep this second, and that thought alone, because – on the road, you've got to pretty much condition yourself and, you know, into a thought process. That thought alone that I've got three hours if I get to sleep right now is the one thing that will keep you up the whole night. You'll just be watching the clock because you see that your time is winding down. The difference is when you're 25 years old, who cares? 
you know, you didn't even sit down in those days. Most of us lay down because of, of, of all the hype and all the great things that are going on. Hey, I wrestled Dusty Rhodes in the Road Warriors tonight. You know, laying down in the bed and going into a coma is is not that big a deal on the Richter scale. You know, I'm I'm reliving the match and reliving being in there with those guys and the reaction they got and the reaction we got. Just, man, it overrode needing sleep, put it to you that way. Let's, um, let's talk a little bit about, uh, you know, how you're adjusting to Jim Crockett here. Is it a different style of wrestling at all? You know, we've talked about recently on the show that, you know, the style of wrestling that you had, had grown accustomed to with Jim Crockett had to change when you went to the WWF and you even detailed a conversation you had with Barry Darso, uh, about how much you were giving the young stallions was the style of wrestling you were used to in Pensacola and other territories. Was that an adjustment to Jim Crockett or what was different about the Jim Crockett style and expectation compared to the other territories? Well, NWA was a standard and you had to be able to work. You had to be able to pull time. You had to be able to tell a story. Um, and in, in those days, because, you know, you didn't have high profile heels like the, um, the four horsemen, let's just face it. We were pretty high profile and we superseded heel or baby face. You just had Led Zeppelin coming to your town get your ass up and go get a ticket. Now it's only a month away and people, that was the mentality. Uh, so when I got to Jim Crockett, it was what I had been conditioned to do. I've often said Bill Watts was a very difficult man to work for. He was very intimidating. It was a rough place to work cause you would travel sometimes 3000 miles. 2,500 was the norm, but the fact that you had to go out there and not punch and not kick and wrestle that's how you learned how to work, and that's how you learned how to sustain a job in a territory where you went to a town weekly or biweekly. You better have enough stuff on your tool belt uh, to be able to go out and, you know, four weeks in a row in a given month, you might be in the same town. So you had to change your matchup every single week, and that's the same way it was with Crockett. Um it was pretty much an NWA thing versus a WWF thing because the rings weren't as hard. The ropes were different. They would kick you off different. The spots seemed faster on the smaller ring, quicker, harder hitting because you got a bigger ring. It takes you longer to hit the ropes and, and come back to where the guy is in the middle of the ring. All those little things were the differences, but mostly it was storytelling in the NWA and whichever territory that was, you know, Memphis was a whole different thing. They had a bit of a cartoon-esque, uh, you know, feel to their to their company and the way, you know, you would always say, oh, that's a Tennessee high spot. But you had guys that could work. Jerry Lawler could work. He could go out and for an hour and tell a great story. They had a lot of great workers that went through Tennessee, but they had to adapt to that style. Jim Crockett Promotions means you had to have a good, solid base working knowledge of how to tell a story and you had some TV time to get yourself over and uh, they would at least give you the tools. And if you had the wherewithal to get over, you got over. Let's circle back to Oli for a minute. He's your tag team partner on this show. And he sort of laid the groundwork that 
you felt like Jim Crockett needed him more than he needed Jim Crockett. He was already sort of well to do based on uh, his investments outside of wrestling. And of course, owning a territory and uh, being a top guy uh, for years and years through those territories. What did you learn from Ole? I mean, obviously you could probably write a book about that. You being a young guy and him being the older vet, but is there one thing that you still carry with you that is still applicable today that you learned from Ole that you could share with us? Yeah. I learned a lot from Ole and Ole was as cantankerous back then as he is today. And everybody knows how that is today, uh, for due reasons and several reasons. Um, but the fact was, you know, I respected Ole Anderson. I idolized Ole Anderson, uh, you know, bell to bell, being on that apron and watching what he brought to the match when he stepped through the ropes. It was entirely different than anybody else in the match. No matter what they thought about Ole, Ole had gained the respect of wrestling fans, and they knew he was a tough son of a bitch. There was no doubting that. Uh, and Ole just taught me, uh, when you get in there, make a baby face earn what he gets with you. Don't just go in and start bouncing around. And I'm a hyped up 26 year old. I'm in there wanting to, you know, shit and get it. I'd come over and tag Ole. He'd go, why are you taking all those goofy ass bumps? Well, it didn't register in my mind. Then he was probably right, but I was just trying to create excitement for the match. So it wasn't a bad thing. Just in his mind, if we wanted to get over, if he if I wanted to get over quicker, be a little more selfish. And he never said those words, hey, be selfish out there. He just said, Hey, you know, quit taking all those goofy bumps. So I learned the bell to bell stuff and making a baby face earn his way through a match which translated to the audience respecting that baby face. If he was just in there steamrolling all the heels, that gets old pretty quick. So I learned that from him. There was an old cliche that the old timers used to always say to the young guys, save your money. This ain't going to last forever. Save your money. It took me a while to listen to him because I started with absolutely nothing. When I went to Crockett, I had a, a Toyota Corolla, with my television in the back and some clothes and about 600 bucks in my pocket. And that's all I had to my name. Um, when I got to Crockett, Ole became my partner. It would always be save your money, kid. It looks like you're going to be in a good position. Save your money. Well, it, I had to buy a house. I had to do some things. And once well, I got married and, and had a child on the way and all those things. That was all stuff that I had to accumulate from not having anything. So that save your money started to kick in. And uh, I took that advice as well. And let's just say overall, my experience with Ole was a learning experience. Let's, uh, let's talk about the show, uh, Starcade here. Our hosts are Tony Schiavone and Bob Cottle with Johnny Weaver conducting the interviews in Greensboro. And the first match is going to be for the vacant mid Atlantic heavyweight championship. And I guess the story is that, uh, somebody was owed some money by JCP. So they leave the territory and take the belt with him. Did you ever hear this story? No, but I have no problem believing it. <laughs> 
Buzz Tyler, I believe, is uh, the performer. We don't hear about Buzz very often. Do you got any good Buzz stories you can share with us? No, no. I, I just I faintly remember Buzz. I remember he was a big, rugged guy, uh, good worker, had a pretty good reputation across the country from, you know, what I could tell. But he was he was gone before I really got settled in and got to spend much time around him. Once he's out of here, we've got to crown a new champion. So this match is going to be between Sam Houston and your old pal Crusher Khrushchev. Uh, the finish is going to see Houston hit a few rights in the corner and then nails the bulldog. Houston covers Khrushchev, but he gets his foot on the bottom rope. And Houston thinks he's won, but he's too busy celebrating to see that Khrushchev is about to hit him with the Russian sickle. And Khrushchev gets the pin and then the belt. And the replay shows that Houston had his foot on the bottom rope after two which results in a feud for the next two months. Uh, your pal Crusher Khrushchev, we know is going to go on to become uh, smash and demolition. And then later the repo man. And of course, blacktop bully in WCW, the real life, Barry Darso. Are you already fast friends with Barry here or had that relationship not really had a chance to get going? Well, where I first met Barry was, uh, my first go around with Oli and born as a partner, when Bourne got fired, they had just brought Barry in. They had just brought Rick Root in, and we did some six-mans. The three of us, uh, well, it was actually Root and the Road Warriors against Barry, myself, and Chief Joe Lightfoot. There's a name from the past. Uh, we did some six-mans uh, for about 10 days with the Road Warriors and Rick Root. Uh, so that's where I first met Barry. Then I went to Pensacola, and we didn't see each other. Barry went to uh, Bill Watts, I believe, and spent that that part of his career. And then uh, he, he had uh, came to uh, Charlotte to be partners with Ivan, and he got there ahead of me. And when I got there, I already knew Barry, and we picked up our friendship right there and became very, very good friends over the years. Let's, uh, let's talk about Sam Houston for a minute. I don't know when we'll talk about him again. He winds up, uh, marrying baby doll and even goes to the WWF briefly and bounces around the Indies for a bit. And then he gets into a little bit of trouble, uh, with the law. You got to get Sam Houston stories you can share with us. Um, probably one that he doesn't want to hear again and may have a, another answer to, but this is what we were told and it, you're talking about committing suicide. You know, you, I say sometimes in jest, it's like when guys mess with me, I just say, Hey, can't you find a building to jump off of? This would apply with this story. Now, Sam was an excellent worker. Sam was one of those happy go lucky baby faces that were great to have on your first to third match of the night. Very good hand, sold great, nothing really missing in his work. He needed to get to the gym more, but that's a personal choice. That's up to each individual. For longevity, you need to go to the gym every day, even if you're not going to be a body guy. Take that from me. It just increases your overall length of time in the business. But once Sam started seeing Baby Doll, we were in Atlanta one night. Omni was packed. Uh, 
we were on to the very end, and it was a Sunday night. And in those nights, one of the things you got to work around, you know, we're not McDonald's guys. Uh, Flair and Tully, there was a place that we uh, ate out on Virginia Avenue, and I can't remember the name of it, but it was a Bennigan's type place, and it was the only place you could get any food after a certain time on Sunday night out by the airport. There just wasn't restaurants that were open past that. And uh, so Tully gave Baby Doll the word. He was like third to the end or something. Hey, Jimmy, you want some food? Now, this is Tully talking to Jimmy Crockett, the owner of the company. Well, yeah. Dusty, you want some food? Well, yeah. Rick, yes. Arn, yes. Okay. I'll have Baby Doll go out ahead of us. Have her call it in, have her go pick it up and meet us at the Marriott. Well, Sam had been seeing Baby Doll during this time, which no one knew. No one also knew that when she said, hey, Sam, let's go. I got to go pick up some food for the guys. Something along these lines, and we got this second party, Sam decided to say, hey, you're not, you know, you're not their uh, slave. You don't have to go get them food. Piss on that. Let them get their own food. You heard the cast of characters I just told you who yeah. the food was for. Sure. Pretty stout, huh? Yeah. Well, she listened. We get back there starving. No food. Nowhere to get any food. I think Tully cornered Baby Doll. And she just did what she does. She told the truth. Well, it buried her. It buried Sam. And the two of them weren't very long for the company after that. That's a pretty stout uh, Sam Houston story, wouldn't you say? <laughs> yeah. The idea that his career comes to an end for the most part <laughs> because he didn't let his girlfriend get fucking food for the booker and the owner. Yeah. Yeah. You know, Sam, it's okay to let her get us some chicken breasts, okay? It's not overriding your new um, relationship. So some pieces of that may not be exactly right, but that's pretty much the premise, and that's pretty much the way it went down. And uh, that's why Sam Houston story. The next match is Abdul the Butcher taking on Manny Fernandez in a Mexican death match. I guess it's basically like a sombrero on a pole match. Uh, the finish would see Abdullah deliver some headbutts and Fernandez would fight back. And then he hits the flying forearm smash, but Abdullah doesn't go down. So Fernandez comes off the middle turnbuckle with a clothesline to finally get Abdullah down. And Fernandez goes up top and instead of grabbing the sombrero, misses Abdullah completely. And, uh, Abdullah throws Fernandez in the corner and then misses a charge and hits the ring post. Finally, Fernandez climbs up the corner, grabs a sombrero for the win. Abdullah the butcher has, uh, quite the name in the wrestling business, but I don't know that he's near the character behind the scenes that Manny Fernandez was. Some of our younger listeners who, who know you from your WCW and WWE days, they may not be familiar or terribly familiar with the name Manny Fernandez. If I was to say, do you have any good Manny stories? I'm sure you have several. Can you give us uh, a couple here about the, uh, the man behind the character, Manny Fernandez? Well, you know, Manny was 
an excellent worker. Let's just start there. And uh, he was solid. And uh, Manny was a veteran. When I got there, he had a lot more experience in the business uh, before I got to Jim Crockett Promotions. He, he was also had just previously had a tag tag champion run with him and Dusty. So he was positioned excellent uh, when I got there. And that was my very first TV. I broke a guy's arm. So Manny came down to see about this enhancement talent that had a broke arm and was rolling around the ring. I ended up dropping Manny from behind, left him laying, so from my first television on, I had a angle and was brought in pretty stout. So you can imagine with some of the stories we've already talked about, like payoffs and positioning and all that, wouldn't you think, if you were me, that they had plans for you? Of course you would. So um, we started that angle, and Manny and I were doing some singles around, and then that morphed into the tag matches with uh, Ole and um, Thunderbolt Patterson. But Manny was one of those guys that he would tell a whopper every now and then. Let's just say he would enhance a story a little bit. And uh, that's what you learned about Manny um, pretty soon. Um, Manny did like it, you know, to have a few drinks. And if, you know, a guy said anything in the bar, he had a pretty short fuse. Um Manny was just one of those guys that, that did a little barking, but if you, it was kind of like Ole. If you just saw through it and moved on, there were no issues. Um, but the main, main thing was that I took away from it. There was probably a little animosity with Manny and me because I didn't have the experience that he did, and he probably felt that I might not have been in – in a position to drop him my first television and all that stuff and to be in this angle with him. Um, and I felt a little bit of tension, you know, never had an issue, anything that, that blew up into more than just uh, maybe a heated argument here and there. Um, but, yeah, no problems with Manny. Abdullah the Butcher, quite the controversial character through the history of wrestling. Could a character like Abdullah the Butcher – you know, that gimmick and his style of doing business. Would that ever work in 2019? Do you think? No. Did you ever have nope. any matches with Abdullah? Nope. Um, it was pretty one dimensional. Abdullah would come in. You needed a short match. You needed a bloodbath. Once Abdullah had fell down, once the bloom was off the rose was not an attractive sight. Him getting back up. <laughs> and God bless him. He he bled to death for the business and he worked his ass off for the business and he drew some money down in Puerto Rico and Atlanta and some different places. Uh but uh it wasn't an up and down affair when you had a match with Abby. Uh, the next match is uh, Ron Bass and Black Bar in a bull rope match. If Bass wins, he gets a five minute bull rope match with JJ Dillon. Of course, the finish comes when Bass comes off the middle rope and hits Black Bart with the cowbell. That, of course, leads to Bass and JJ. Uh, the finish would see Black Bart sneak in and give Bass a pile driver, and then he lays Dillon on top of Bass for the pin. 
Uh, a few months after this, JJ is going to go on to become the manager of the four horsemen behind the scenes. We've heard that JJ was essentially, uh, the assistant booker for dusty and almost acted in a more administrative role where dusty would paint with the broad strokes. He would come behind him with the finer details. What was your relationship like with, with JJ here in November of 85? JJ had excellent penmanship. Let's just put it to you that way. That was, that was very, very important in those days for the assistant booker. And James was a smart guy, but as you can see the, you know, the evolution of things that were coming to pass, baby doll was being taken away from Tully for obvious reasons. Um, Black Bart and uh, Ron Bass, I would assume, were finishing up. They were in their last stages. So J.J., you know, who had had a a successful career in Texas and other places as a wrestler uh, slash assistant booker or booker or whatever his roles were prior to that, certainly put him in a position to – to be figured in with us. And he was figured in with Tully first and JJ looked good in a suit. JJ could talk his ass off, had a great mind for the business. And he was like a calming, um, it was like a calming voice when you would talk about business and asking to have things explained to you. He could explain it in a way that would settle you down and calm you down and, you know, he was a pro. He was a, in every way, he was a shooting manager. He would organize our travel at least by asking us, Hey, what do you think guys? Should we do this? Should we do that? Fly into here, you know, rent a car there where you guys want to stay, all that stuff. He actually helped us or until we figured it out for ourselves because we're young guys and running wide open, you know, in those days it wasn't, you know, okay, Marriott, close to the building or we got an early flight Marriott close to the airport, whatever it was. Uh, he helped organize all that. So, uh, he truly was a manager in every sense of the word. And, uh, as we started to put the pieces together and the horseman name came out and it kind of bonded us all together, which was by chance, um, JJ was a perfect fit. And he was as much a horseman over the years as anyone else. He earned his right. He was a very important part of that unit. And um, he deserves a spot in eternity. Oh, Arn, real quick. I want to brag on something. I got an email over the weekend from a listener who went to savewithconrad.com and we saved him 600 bucks a month. $600, not just one time, not just one month. Each and every month, all because they went to savewithconrad.com. What would your family do with an extra 600 bucks a month? Really think about that. You talk about giving yourself a raise. That's more than seven grand a year. They're going to save. And it all started with a few quick clicks over at savewithconrad.com. Now you don't need perfect credit to do this. And you definitely don't need money out of your pocket. In fact, if I can't help you save some cash, I won't waste your time. What are you waiting for? Find out how much money you can save right now at savewithconrad.com. And by the way, I should mention we're licensed in more than 40 states, so we can probably help you out as well. And even credit scores in the 500s will qualify. So it's a no-brainer, especially if you've got credit card debt. The average interest rate on a credit card right now is over 19, 20%, and it's not tax deductible. Whereas the interest you pay on your mortgage is tax deductible. 
So if you can have a higher rate, that's not tax deductible or a lower rate that is tax deductible. Okay. You see where I'm going. This is a no brainer. Find out how much money you can save. And how's this for starters? No house payments for two months right here during the holiday season, man, that's going to get you a heck of a jump start on next year. Don't make saving money. A new year's resolution somewhere on that new year's resolution list will be like, save money, get out of debt, lose weight. Well, two out of three ain't bad. And I can do it for you right now at savewithconrad.com. NMLS number 65084, equal housing lender. Next up, superstar Billy Graham and the Barbarian in a $10,000 arm wrestling match. And then, of course, the actual wrestling match. Graham's going to win, but then Paul Jones nails him in the face with his cane. And then, uh, of course, Graham and Barbarian have to wrestle in an actual match. The finish would see Barbarian go up top for the diving headbutt. But Graham moves out of the way and he hooks on the bear hug. Paul Jones jumps in, hits Graham with his cane, and there's your DQ finish. So Graham wins both the arm wrestling match and the actual wrestling match, the wrestling portion by DQ. Billy Graham here in Jim Crockett Promotions. He's uh, obviously a, a big time star for Vince McMahon's WWF. But now here he is trying to reinvent himself for Jim Crockett Promotions. Uh, you got any good Billy Graham stories you can share with us? No, just, you know, at that time he had tried to morph over. He had shaved his head and had on karate pants and still had some incredible arms, but the body was not what it had been for WWF. Still a good, you know, had a good look, good biceps, good triceps. You know, it looked, looked pretty nasty with the shaved head, but the style of wrestling, again, I go back to it was an NWA thing. Right. You had you had to shit and get it, you know. Doing a uh, test of strength for five minutes didn't get it done with our audience. You had to go out and tear it up. And that was never his style, and it fit because he looked so incredible in the WWF days. People were just mesmerized by him, you know. And I looked at the guy, you know, and you go, Jesus Christ, what a body. And that's what what kind of guided him through the WWF didn't apply in the NWA. And he was probably a fish out of water working for Crockett. Well, it came off that way, you know, as a wrestling fan, you know, it, it just, uh, it doesn't seem like it should have been. He seems like a WWF guy through and through and his style of wrestling, as you put it, uh, didn't exactly blend in here. And thanks to his, you know, body, probably deteriorating on him a little bit. He needed to become even more limited. So he tries this karate man role. And I guess that was a big deal in the mid eighties. You know, the, the karate craze was, was huge and Kung Fu movies were big on VHS and he's trying something, but it just felt like a little bit of a mess. Uh, next up is a match for the NWA national title. Terry Taylor is going to be defending against buddy Landale. Who's also managed by JJ Dillon. The finish would see Terry Taylor hit Landell with a forearm and that sets him up for the superplex, but Dylan would trip Taylor to cause Landell Landell to uh, fall on top for the, uh, the three count and he gets the, uh, the win and the championship, but he's not long for this world. I think Jim Crockett promotions winds up firing buddy Landell just a few weeks after this. And the rumor and innuendo is that Landell was struggling with, uh, some addiction problems at this point and. Uh, no showed TV. And, and that was sort of all she wrote. Is that the word you heard about buddy Landale? 
Yeah, you know, when I think about Buddy, I, I just get sad. Um, anybody that knew Buddy and was around him and could get past all the bullshit he was spewing walking around the, the, the locker room, and it was just egghead shit. It wasn't vicious stuff. It was just an attempt at humor, and some of it was really funny, but it was only funny because it was Buddy saying it. Um Buddy is probably one of the guys in the top three of missed career opportunities that just leaps off the page. Buddy was brought in, looked fantastic, excellent worker, really a smart ass that came across on his promos. I mean, he had all the tools, and they immediately – attached him to flair. Now I'm talking about the audience, you know, you're a Ric Flair wannabe or, you know, you're trying to be Ric Flair because buddy had that incredible blonde hair, thick, good head of hair on him. You sense a little bit of hair envy on this conversation, Conrad. Yes, I do. Yeah. There's a little heat there. But <laughs> just him combing his hair got heat. You know, and he had one of those big combs and all that. And Buddy was the whole package. What Buddy was, you know, mentally at that time, however, was a child. Now, I did some traveling with Buddy because we started at the exact same week for Jim Crockett. I don't know how well that's known, but we were two of the guys that was that were recruited by Ric Flair to come in. Uh, we were part of that new evolution of their business. We started the same TV. And, you know, from day one, it was pointed out to Buddy that he was going to be pushed. And uh, Buddy was making money from day one. And uh, as Buddy got a little more involved, you know, and was there a little longer and his positioning changed and he moved up the card – he was making some money, and uh, I remember riding with Buddy one time. I was going to pick him up. I went over, and Buddy's got a brand-new Lincoln sitting in the driveway. He's got a brand-new Mustang convertible sitting in the driveway. And I'm thinking, now, we're kind of positioned the same, and I don't have two new cars sitting in my driveway. What the hell's going on here? Um, so I go in, knock on the door. I go in, Buddy's wife says he's in the shower. He's running late. Come in, make yourself at home. Imagine that Buddy's running late. So, uh, I'm just kind of, you know, leaning by the bar area and I look over and there's a stack of probably five or six Jim Crockett promotion envelopes, i.e. checks, uncashed sitting right there on the bar. Um, so buddy comes out and, and, you know, in those days, what the hell? I mean, I didn't give a shit. I, I done got hot. Now we start our trip. I went, you know, sorry. I, you know, I know this is personal business. You don't have to mention it. You know, we even talk about it if you don't want to, but was that, what was all those stacks of Jim Crocker promotions? Oh, I, Hey baby, baby. I was just checks. I hadn't got around cashing them yet, baby. Just checks. Just just checks. Well, shit, you know, buddy, you know, 
just really wasn't very mature on a finance level. Yeah, he had two new cars, but he had paid nothing down, and he was half the time making the payments, half the time he wasn't. Mm. That's just Buddy. That's just the way he was. Hey, I'll get around to it. I'll get, you know. His checks alone had to screw up the accounting on Jim Crocker Promotions unbelievable by not cashing those checks. I can only imagine. And I'm thinking these are probably mm, $2,500 in that range a piece, you know, times five. It's a lot of money that was supposed to be going through their system that wasn't. But anyway, um, Buddy, from that point that he started making that money, I have a sense that his feeling was, I'm heading to the moon. I can do anything I want. And Buddy did do anything he wanted. And far be it from me to throw any stones about a guy's after-hour stuff. None of my business. Buddy pushed it to another level. And uh, Buddy started to be borderline not dependable. You never saw it with his work. That was the thing that enabled him to get chance after chance after chance because once the bell rang, Buddy could go. He may have gotten there late. There might have been a hint that something was going on, that he wasn't exactly 100% straight, but he would go have a very good match. The audience would get with him. He may disappear after that match and not get there till the next day, right at showtime, but he would perform. And uh, you got to pass sometimes in those days with different talent because of the plans and, and the overall money that you were helping to draw kind of overrides you being a screw-up. And that particular day, Buddy was right in line to do an angle with Flair. It had, he had built. They had built the angle. They had rubbed them up against each other. He was probably a week or two out from shooting the angle wrestling Flair on major markets around Crockett's territory, which you can imagine what money he would have made. But we went to Atlanta. JJ knew where Buddy stayed. Um, and Buddy didn't show up for TV. JJ started calling the room. He called the first time. Buddy answered, hung up. Sounded like he was sound asleep. JJ called back. Sounded like the... Uh, and I'm paraphrasing this story the way it went down, but it was something like this. Sounded like the phone got knocked off in the floor. Uh, so JJ thought, hey, I better go talk to Dusty. He did. Conversation went something like this. JJ, I'll give you one last chance. Go get his ass up. Get him in the shower. Get him here. If he's not here in an hour and a half, he's done. JJ went, was banging on the door. Buddy cracked the curtain. JJ, sorry, baby, I'm not going. Shut the curtain. That was the end of Buddy Landell. Oh, my gosh. What a story. Thank you for filling in the blanks. I mean, there had been lots of uh, rumor and innuendo, but I don't think we'd gotten that detailed of a story uh, before about Buddy and sort of what, what happened here. Uh, Dusty would later award himself the title. And then uh, he wound up losing it to Tully Blanchard on March 4th, 1986. 
The next match is yours it's for the national tag team titles. You and Ole Anderson defending those titles against Wahoo McDaniel and Billy Jack Haynes. Wahoo and Billy Jack are the United States champ from the Florida territory at the time, but those belts, of course, are not on the line. And those are different from the NWA US tag belts. Those aren't going to be created until September of 86. But the finish would see Wahoo hit you with a uh, chop and then he covers you, but Ole breaks up the count at two. And while the ref is busy with Billy Jack, Ole trips up Wahoo and you make the cover, but Wahoo kicks out of two. Wahoo would fight back and uh, back you up against the ropes. Ole trips him again and then holds Wahoo's leg as you get the pin to retain the titles. Wahoo McDaniels is somebody who uh, Ric Flair has put over forever. Uh, back in the day when we had a podcast and we would often tease that we were going to have you as a guest for Thanksgiving. Here we are talking about a Thanksgiving show and you wrestling Wahoo. But he believes that Wahoo McDaniel should not only be in the Hall of Fame, he should be in twice. And he's, of course, joking. Just he feels that strongly that he's been overlooked. Do you think the same? I mean, you, you grew up uh, working with Wahoo. Is is Wahoo a guy who maybe doesn't get the, the credit he's he's really due? Absolutely. Um, but Wahoo, you know, here's the reason that it's so. He spent most of his time with Crockett, not WWF, right? He never had a body of work in the WWF. The only Hall of Fame is a WWF Hall of Fame. Wahoo never made his, uh, his name up there. Um, Wahoo McDaniels, and I caught him at the very end of his career. Number one was a, was a very good man. And I say that in the sense that if you were a young guy, you could go to Wahoo, ask him advice. He would level with you. Um, he was a good, solid uh, businessman. And, buddy, you know, when he was younger, prior to the injuries and age just taking over, and it does, trust me, I know, uh, it starts to limit you. And Wahoo had a really bad shoulder. When we were working with him during this time frame, depending on how bad his shoulder was, he would chop you anywhere from the top of your forehead to probably right above your chest, and you never knew where it was coming. And, brother, it was like a pie pan hitting you. He could still hit hard. And that was his claim to fame. Um, brother, he would knock the piss out of you with those chops, those big, thick hands. And the audience believed him. They bought him. And, uh, you know, here's a guy that I think he ran 30 miles one time when he was in college on a $100 bet or just something ridiculous. Um, he was a hell of an athlete, played pro football, you know, for the Jets. But he had a pedigree. None of that meant that much to the wrestling industry because wrrestling fans don't care if a guy played in the you know pro football. They're there to see wrestlers and wrestling. So he was endeared to the wrestling fans because he earned it. He bled, you know, and uh, he sweat. and in the words of Ric Flair, he paid the price. As far as getting in there and bell to bell, 20 minutes, whatever it called for, he would get in and you would be in for the fight of your life. 
and Wahoo made you earn it. It wasn't a high spot match. It wasn't a lot of excitement up and down and around and in and out. Basically, you were in for a fight, and uh, the audience bought it, and they believed in him. And I think he should go down in history in a much more favorable light than he is right now, certainly in the Hall of Fame. And uh, it would get my vote, that's for sure, twice. Billy Jack Haynes, he's uh, the other tag team partner here against you and Ollie. He's quite the character. Have you seen some of his stuff in recent years where he's uh, cutting promos and ranting and raving? And well, it's a little out there in recent years. No, sir, I haven't. Was he uh, was he a little out there back in '86? Um, people said that I never saw it. Um, him and Wahoo, you know, he added a dimension of a lot more movement in the match. You know, I mean, guy had a hell of a body at the time we were working with him. He looked incredible, had an incredible look and he had had an incredible run. I think for Don Owens out in Portland was his claim to fame. Plus he went to the WWF and, and had some success. Main thing is he, he had that look, man. He just. And I think he was probably a badass, you know. He was one of those guys that you probably didn't want to mess with back in the day. Who knows? But he, he looked incredible. Uh, we only worked with him a few times, not that many. Uh, but he seemed to blend into that mix. You know, when you add Ole in there, you, that was a pretty solid tag match. And uh, that's that's really all I remember from it. And uh, the stuff as of late. I'm unaware of let's, um, let's circle up about the actual match itself. This era, you know, is, is, is very much the call it in the ring era. How much of, of, of this creative would have been discussed before you guys get in the ring. Just to finish. That was probably brought across by Tommy young. In the arena. Uh, that's it. Everything else was in the ring. And, and, you know, people find it hard to believe that everything was called in the ring and all that stuff. There wasn't a lot of talking. You know, that's why you had to have stuff on your tool belt, moves. You had to be able to work holds. You had to know the transitions. You know, uh, and... And the way it went down, it's not a big mystery, but if, if one person doesn't have the knowledge to apply, you could see where it would go south. If we locked up and I muscle you into the ropes and I break clean, you're the baby face. You let that go down. You let it go down. I haven't done anything wrong. If I grab a hold, you're a better wrestler than me, supposedly. You reverse it. And there's not conversation going on. It's just if I snatch an arm and I'm still in that same position five seconds later, pretty good idea. I want you to reverse it. So it's, you just got to know what goes next in the order of things, you know, and in those days there was kind of an order, you know, to the spots. And, you know, if there was three or four ways you could reverse out of a spot and you kind of had that knowledge, which meant, i.e., you needed to be a wrestler and a pro wrestler and, and know what went after that. Um, and then you could start to add stuff or take stuff away. And, you know, and uh, that's the way it was. 
there wasn't sitting there all day and mapping out a six minute match. Never happened. Never would have happened. Shouldn't have happened because it cut down entirely. It cuts down on your ability to learn and improvise and, uh, basically just go work. In this era, how did you find out what the finish was going to be? You know, once upon a time, I know it was written on a chalkboard or, uh, you know, draw a race board in the back and you could just tell what the way the names were positioned or whatever, what, you know, who was going over and then all that type of jazz in this era, occasionally for these big shows, you would have separate locker rooms because you had separate entrances. So you wouldn't be even mingling with your opponent before the match because you guys are coming out from different sections. What, what was it like here in late 85? Yeah, the referee brought was just bring over the finish and just give you a rough estimate of time, which that on a house show, you didn't have to stick to that. But if you went over your time, there better be a good reason. It was all about the fans. It was about drawing money. If I was going to make more money next week, it wasn't because I went in Jimmy Crockett's office and hounded him for more money or hounded Dusty for more money. The way you, you you made more money in those in the business during that time was you got put into a slot that was recognized as a money slot. And if you jumped the house, say, 10, 15 grand from what it was previously and remembering that these were weekly towns or biweekly towns, and when you saw a town jump 10 or 15 grand, it was noticeable and substantial, and you would look at who was in a position – you know, to be on after intermission and who was in those last couple of matches or last three matches or what was different from the card from the last time we were there and what was the house and all that. And it was a pretty quick uh, formula that you could go to and go, okay, these guys jumped the house and that's how you made more money. Uh, so in those days, the referee would have brought that across and uh, that was all the information you had. And the rest, you just went out and called on the fly. Next up, we've got a uh, match here for the United States title. Tully Blanchard's going to defend against Magnum TA. This is probably the most famous match on the card. It's the I Quit Steel Cage match. Uh, quite a build up here for this one. Uh, really a spectacular match. And um, the rules of the match here are rather unique. There are no rules. There are no pinfalls. There are no count outs. There are no disqualifications. The first man to take the microphone and declare that he surrenders would lose. And the finish sees baby doll throw a wooden chair into the cage and Tully would shatter it in the ring and take a broken piece of it and try to stab Magnum in the head. Magnum blocks it and doesn't get Tully off of him completely. And then Magnum knees Tully off of him and then jabs the sharp edged piece into the chair into his forehead and Magnum screams at Tully over and over asking him, do you quit? Eventually Tully has no choice, but to scream yes, several times and Magnum wins the match and the U S title. Did you get a chance to see this match? It's a match. People are still talking about today. More than once. If you want to tell someone who asked, how did you get over back in the day? You know, what was different and how'd you get over? Well, two guys got over during that match. And granted, the guidelines were different. 
what you could do was different, could never get away with anything that gruesome today and haven't been able to for 20 years. Um, Tully and Magnum beat the ever-loving piss out of each other, and it wasn't pretty. There wasn't really a um, method to the madness. It was Tully who was a little bit overmatched because Magnum was a big kid back then and on his way to being a huge superstar at that time. If he wasn't already, he was right on the cusp. He was one match away, and this was the match that sealed it for him. One thing people have to know as um, an audience member about baby faces, and we get away from this all the time, they don't quit. They don't tap out. They stay in the fight until there's a pretty good reason that they can't be in the fight anymore. The main thing is people have to believe in baby faces. They have to have faith that you may get knocked out, you may get crippled, you may get hurt, the match may have to end for one of those reasons, but it's not because you say, I give up. Heels, different story. Gets too hot in the kitchen, yeah, I'll give up today to live and fight another day. That's the reason audience members don't like heels because they become gutless when it's a level playing field and they're not doing too well. They like baby faces because no matter how unlevel the, the field gets, they know that guy's not going to quit. They can stay there and just be in their corner to the bitter end and because they believe in them. And uh, that's the way that match was built, and that's the way it went down, and it was one of those things because I knew nothing that was going on except to sit there and watch it. It was as a fan, I was a huge, probably the biggest fan of that match in that arena that night. And because I knew what was going on from a performer standpoint, and it was one hell of a match. And one thing just recently that I saw, and I think it fell under, which was ironic and really cool. I think it fell under a WWF heading. Um, I think they put the list together of top Starcade matches of all time. And number one, guess what it was? This one. Yes. And you would think they would have encroached on that and put one of their matches in there just because of self-promotion. They gave this one its due, and it was. It's, it probably was the best Starcade match of all time. Storytelling, physicality, um, what were going to be the repercussions of the uh, aftermath of it, just all that drama was awesome and uh i was glad to hear that it got voted number one we did an entire panel about this at starcast 2 in las vegas where we had you know magnum ta and tony blanchard break down the brutality of this match and it was one of the most talked about panels that weekend and it's it's still the highlight of this entire show if you're going to watch one match from this show this week you should definitely go out of your way to watch that one even if you've seen it before or you just haven't seen it in a long time Go out of your way to see that one. Uh, next up, we've got an Atlanta street fight with the Midnight Express taking on Jimmy Valiant and uh, Miss Atlanta Lively, who is Ronnie Garvin in drag. And, uh, of course, the WWF takes a lot of criticism 
justifiably so for some of their rather silly and outrageous creative, but dressing up Ronnie Garvin in drag. This is uh, woo, 1985. Uh, the finish sees Bobby Eaton go up top for the Alabama jam, but uh, Garvin catches him coming down with a forearm to the face for the win. You know, the Midnights are one of the most talented tag teams of all time. And this just sort of feels like a bit of a throwaway match here to me. Am I wrong? No, that's probably exactly what it was. And it was, you know, put Bobby and Dennis out there. They can make it happen with anybody. And I'm sure they did. I'm sure they kept the excitement level up. Talk to me about Jimmy Valiant. We haven't spent a lot of time talking about him here on the show. Tony Schiavone, big fan of of Jimmy Valiant. Thought he was very entertaining on his promos. And of course, he's probably, you know, more, uh, more entertainment, but than than in-ring action, but still the crowd for whatever reason with JCP, man, they love some Jimmy Valiant. They love the boogie woogie man. Well, you know, in those days you had a spot for a gimmick, you know, at least one gimmick more than one, you'd be pushing it, but it turned out that way sometimes, but in a territory, you had a gimmick and Jimmy Valiant was a gimmick. He'll be the first one to tell you he was a gimmick. Uh, and it wasn't about, body or ability to wrestle um, or storytell, you know, all he did was entertain. And he was great for the kids and he was great for the older folks who were fans, you know, that, that just wanted to have a good time. And and you had to go out and you had to work around Jimmy. You know, Jimmy had some famous spots and one of them was the, was the pit, we called it the piss spot, to where you would Jimmy grab a headlock, you'd shoot him off, you'd drop down, he'd drop down beside you, you'd look over, and there's a Jimmy Valiant laying right beside you. You'd pop up on all fours, he'd pop up on all fours, raise his leg like a dog pissing on you. And the audience all got it. And you roll out and raise hell and bitch at the grandma that was ringside that had a cane who once you, you fussed at her a little bit and then turned your back. She'd break the cane over your back. And that was not part of the show. <laughs> it, just, it just happened sometimes, but Jimmy was great for talking. You know, he could talk now. He had a strong rap. He could talk them in the building. Um, but for the more physical guys, you know, like the barbarians of the world and, and those guys that needed to go out and bounce you around, it was not a good booking. He needed, uh, a Midnight Express or or an Arn Anderson or a Tully Blanchard or one of those guys that could go out and, and just feature Jimmy stuff. And it was understood, and he was a good guy, you know. And, uh, you know, it was Jimmy Valley. It was Jimmy Valley, the boogie-woogie man. It was a night off, that's for sure. If you got hurt working with Jimmy Valiant, you should have been, you know, thrown out of the business, incarcerated, and hung from a flagpole because it just didn't happen. Next up, for the World Tag Team titles, we've got a cage match with uh, Nikita Navakolov uh, defending against the Rock and Roll Express. Uh, the finish would see um, Ivan tag in, miss a clothesline, and that allows Robert Gibson to drop kick Ivan into the ref. And then Gibson would cover as Morton comes in, and he hits the Russian sickle. Gibson stands back up and also gets hit with the Russian sickle for his trouble. And Nikita places Ivan on top of Gibson, but referee Earl Hebner takes too long to make the count. Eventually Gibson makes a blind tag to Morton who comes in and rolls up Ivan 
And there you go. The rock and roll express have regained the world tag team titles and the place explodes when the rock and rolls win the belts. And we've talked about before that, you know, they're going to be main eventing all over the place in 86, specifically with their, uh, summer sizzler tour or whatever the thing was called over the summer. Talk to us a little bit about how over the rock and rolls were here as baby faces. Well, and in this particular match, you know, Ivan Koloff still had some, some steam. Uh, Nikita Koloff was 280 pounds with traps growing out of his ears and looked every bit the part of a uh, monster. Um, was severely stiff from what I've gathered and heard. And so it was like being in a bar fight, I'm sure. I didn't experience it, thank God, during that period because I was a fellow heel. But uh, Nikita had some heat, which meant the Russians had some heat. And Ivan was a very good talker as well. But rock and roll was one of those phenomenons that only comes along, you know, every 20 years or so. And uh, we used to say every decade you would have a guy come along. Well, as history will show you, you know, very few people in the last 20 years, teams, have been as over as the Rock and Roll Express was. I was there. I lived it. I saw it every night. You know, when you would go to a town and you would be riding into whatever town it was in those days, Rock and Roll had a deal with Hardee's that was like a two-hour signing or a one-hour signing, but... some reason, I think it was two-hour signing. And they would stop. They would get to town early. They would have an autograph session. And when you would, you know, if by chance, if your route took you from wherever you were coming from and you happened to pass that Hardee's, it was like the president was in town. I mean, cops had streets blocked off. There was probably 2,000 people in line waiting to get an autograph from those guys they were they were the Beatles. There's no other way to put it. The Beatles had come to the wrestling industry, and it was everywhere they went, and it uh, it was infectious. Ricky Morton looked like a 12-year-old kid. Robert Gibson complimented Ricky perfectly, and uh, those guys were just over. You know, anyway, you it didn't matter who you booked them with. They were going to sell out or come real, real close. And it was teenage girls to adult girls, kids, and even some of the guys, you know, which you would think the jealousy of our male fans would have overrode it, but not in those days because Ricky and Robert really weren't big body guys. They weren't someone that was going to make the boyfriends and the husbands jealous because their girlfriend or their wife was sitting there goo-goo-eyed at Ricky Morton, who looked 12 years old at the time. It was just a good fit. And if you were a big, nasty heel, if you couldn't get heat pounding on Ricky Morton, you need to pack your bags and get out of the business because those guys were just that good. And they elicited the type of emotion that every heel should experience once in his life. 
And you would have, you literally would have grandmothers trying to, to straddle the rail and come across. You would have, you know, little kids looking for stuff to throw at you. They'd throw their toys at you. You know, there were so many things that would happen that you knew were just legitimate. For a grown man to throw a full beer that he just paid an <laughs> extremely high price for, throw it at you, you knew you had heat. Um, and uh, those guys are still around today, and they've been at it nonstop ever since. Got to be a record. Certainly got my respect. I still see them periodically, and uh, – you know, I hope they know, and I'm pretty sure they do, just what an honor it was to work with those guys as many times with as many different partners as I, as I was fortunate to do. I saw JR talking to the Rock and Rolls not too terribly long ago before an AEW show, and um, Jim was kidding around with, uh, with the guys about how back in the day he would slip into commentary references to Junior. Do you remember who Junior was? Yes, that would be for a Blue Chew extravaganza commercial, I would think, Junior. <laughs> I can't believe this is real. I learned in that conversation that JR, for years and years, had, had talked about Robert Gibson's friend, Junior. I did not know that that was not a real person, and it was, in fact, an inside joke about Robert Gibson's penis. Yes, just randomly, because Robert was a little off the wall, he, you know... There would be a rare occasion like television when we would be doing promos and stuff that we would be under one roof and in the same area. And he would just walk in, you know, the room and on any given week, you could just, Hey, Hoot, what's going on? And he'd go, Junior's hard. And once you were in on the joke, it was like, okay, you want me to leave the room? Is there not room in here for me and Junior? Or what's your point? So it became an ongoing deal and, uh, just part of the, the camaraderie that we had back in the day, you know, inside Joe. Absolutely. Uh, something that else is, is inside is Ivan and Nikita are going to stick to their gimmicks in public as much as they can. Uh, what can you tell us about how hard these guys sort of, uh, stuck to kayfabe with their Russian, uh, facades here? Well, yeah, I mean, prior to my, I hadn't met Ivan yet. Um, yeah, I had, I take that back. I had met Ivan and he was, um, one of the guys that was in the territory when I went there with Matt Bourne for that five months. And he was probably the referee for the Matt Bourne, uh, Brian Blair fight that we've talked about. That was the damnedest fight I ever saw. Uh, Ivan actually was, was making sure nobody went into anybody's eye, did anything underhanded. I mean, on a shoot fight, you know, I think, I think maybe Matt tried to stick his thumb in uh, Blair's eye and Ivan kicked the hand out of the eye and just some stuff like that. So he already had my respect as far as that went. And he was a machine. He worked his ass off and he stayed in character all the time where the fans were concerned. Nikita kayfabe Du Bois. First time I met Nikita was the day before I started television. And I went up two days early, obviously. Went to the gym where I found out the boys trained and, you know, and I, I didn't know who Nikita was yet. I hadn't seen on a television yet. 
so I didn't know who he was, but I knew he had to be somebody. And uh, I forget what what the giveaway was, other than the fact that his friggin' traps were growing out of his ears. But I just put two and two together, and I went over and stuck my hand out. And he's sitting there doing concentration curls with an 85-pound dumbbell. For those people that work out and understand what I just said, correct, concentration curl, sitting on the end of the bench, elbow on your thigh, 85-pound dumbbells, which is a bunch. Um, stuck out my hand, introduced myself, and he said something, and then something, and like Russian, and I went, all right, uh, all righty then. And uh, for that brief moment in time, I thought, well, this guy, they have went and got him a real Russian here, you know. Mark, Mark Anderson, hello. Next day, you get to TV, and I talk to Barry, and I go, well, I met, you know, I met your partner. Um, real Russian? No, he just, you know, he stays in character all the time. He's, uh, he's, uh, you know, he's, he's Nikita. So I started to get the background. We had a private conversation about the guy, and I understood right then. And I respect the fact that he protected the business and took care of his gimmick and all that. And uh, it was very, very rare in those days. And I actually thought it was pretty cool. Let's get to our main event. The main event of Starcade 85 is for the world title, of course. It's Ric Flair defending the 10 pounds of gold against the American Dream, Dusty Rhodes. This, of course, is a rematch from Starcade '84, a year prior, where they had wrestled once again with the world title on the on the line. Ric Flair defending it here, but their winner would get a million dollars. Smoking Joe Frazier of boxing fame was the referee, and he's going to stop it because of a cut over Dusty's eye, and he'll award the match to Flair. So here's a rematch. In '85, Rick was a, a babyface for a good portion of the year, feuding with Nikita and others, and then. On September 29th in the Omni, Rick would defeat Nikita in a cage match. And after the match was over, Ivan Koloff and Crusher Khrushchev would come into the ring and they all start beating up Flair. And then Dusty Rhodes would run in to make the save for Rick. And he beat up the Russians to a thunderous ovation from the crowd. And after the Russians left, Dusty turned to help Rick up. But Rick starts yelling at Dusty, saying things like, I told you not to interfere in my business. And as Dusty was distracted with Rick, you and Ole attack him. Rick uh, gets to his feet, pauses for a moment, and then goes over to the cage door, pulls the chain back through, and padlocks it shut. So now Dusty Rhodes is locked inside of a cage with the Andersons and Rick Flair. And uh, Rick joins you guys in beating up Dusty. And you and Ole hold Dusty while Rick jumps from the top turnbuckle onto Dusty's leg, breaking his ankle. And this is a white hot angle at the Omni, and it instantly turns Rick back into. Not only a heel, but the most hated man in the company. Talk to us. Uh, I'm sure we're going to do a whole show about that at some point. Uh, but briefly talk to us about this, this monumental angle that really sets up Starcade uh, and makes it the marquee attraction where you guys break Dusty's ankle. It was one of those things that if you were there, you were glad you were there. If you were a fan, because that angle took so many twists and turns by the time you finally figured out what the eventual end was going to be, which was Dusty getting his 
his leg broke um, from the fact that Flair came down, the Russians split. You had that thing with Dusty go down. Then we came down. It switched gears again, went another direction. And uh, I can tell you, people have asked me, you know, what is the hairiest situation you've ever been in? Well, you know, in those days, there were a lot of those. People would get immersed in the story and the characters. And Dusty Rhodes had his fans, buddy, and they were religious about it. And the fact was in those days, you know, if you got somebody in a cage and you got them in a bad way, you would get some good guys down there and the heels would vamoose and uh, that was the end of it. We didn't vamoose. Guys started climbing that cage, and these are the Rock and Roll Express and Terry Taylor and any number of baby faces. But it was prominent people trying to get in that cage, and they just kept getting knocked off. And we just kept stomping that leg and pounding the piss out of Dusty, and the heat built, and it built. And people started throwing stuff, and people started shoving their self closer and closer to that cage. So finally, we figured out, I mean, after that thing had, had met a fever pitch, we said, okay, we better get out of here. So we headed towards the door. I think Rick was probably the first one and myself and then Ole. And he opened that door and started to step through out of that cage and about 20 across and about 15 deep fans just surged forward and shut that cage door back on us. You guys aren't going anywhere. And more baby faces started coming down and started climbing that cage. And we started knocking them off again. And it just got more and more and more violent. And you could just, I mean, it was like a dull roar, but, I mean, there was thousands of people screaming at us. So we tried to open the door again. We got it open. And had it not been for about 10, I would estimate about 10 Atlanta police officers coming down with their nightsticks and beating the crowd back where we could get out of the cage, it took us 20 minutes to get from the cage back to the locker room. I had a head full of stitches where somebody hit me with something. We were all bleeding. The the fans beat the ever-loving shit out of us. And I've never been so scared in my entire life because Ole had already been stabbed. I'd already been cut in the back in uh, Dothan, Alabama when I worked for the Fullers. So I knew it was it was possible, and I knew it was highly probable in this situation that we weren't going to make it back. And, and it was all we could do. Had those Atlanta police officers not been there, We'd have been dead, I have no doubt. And it was one of the most high-pressure things. We actually waited two hours before we tried to leave the arena, and we had a police escort leaving the arena. It was that hot. Yeah, I I don't know that younger fans could really even process just how emotionally invested the crowd was in professional wrestling in 1985, but this is something to go out of your way to see. Let's talk about the Starcade match. The finish would see Dusty hit some elbows and then a clothesline. He goes for a pin, but only gets two. And when Rick kicks out, Dusty goes to referee Tommy Young, knocking him outside to the floor. 
and dusty then elbows flare down puts him into the figure four and you run in and dusty releases the hold so he can knock you back out to the floor Oli runs in knees dusty from behind and you and Oli start going to the back as rick recovers dusty has a uh uh, a bad situation here as Rick has covered him up and a new ref comes out. But of course, Dusty kicks it too. Flair tries for a slam. Dusty reverses it into a small package for a three count and wins the world title. Or so we thought a week later, Tommy Young is going to change the ruling to a DQ win for Dusty because he saw you and only run in. And since the title can't change hands on a DQ, it returns to Rick. As we know, over the summer of 86, Dusty would, in fact, beat Rick for the world title. By this point, that belt in physical form had been replaced from the 10 pounds of gold. Now it's the big gold belt. It happens in Greensboro, the Great American Bash in a cage match. He loses it back, you don't know, two weeks later, maybe, in St. Louis at a house show. But I got to wonder, you know, what you think of this finish. For better or worse, this is... uh, the first time we see, or one of the first times we see on a big stage like this with closed circuit and just the monument, monumental size of Starcade, a dusty finish. And for better or worse, that's what this finish has been nicknamed a dusty finish. What'd you think of the finish? And do you think the classification of it being a dusty finish and nicknamed that is, uh, is fair? Well, it's probably a nickname. You know, nobody ever thinks about this could be the possibility. A dusty finish might be a positive thing. People have always kind of put it as being a negative thing. Well, try booking try booking a territory where you have weekly towns and bi-weekly towns and all that, and you're trying to draw money. You're trying to keep certain baby faces at a level where the audience believes in them. They do the right thing. You try to keep heat on heels. You got a heel champion who's got three guys that are constantly covering his back. So it's almost impossible to beat that champion, which uh, puts the baby face in a corner. You've got to make them believe. You have to, I go back to that, the audience has to believe. And every now and then, you'd have to bump a referee who was out of position to see what went down. But if the baby face had actually won the match and there was just no ref there to count it, people remember that. And then you can have some screwed up things go on a week later. As long as again, did it make sense? Well, the referee saw the tape. He realized it was not a uh, proper deal. It should have been a DQ at that time. As long as the story you're telling is plausible, that's what heat was. And you made them believe that the babyface could win that match, given the circumstances that some way, somehow, you could keep the other horsemen out of the out of the mix. And that was the story, and that's what drew money for a long, long time. That's why, you know, when Dusty came back and was partners with the Road Warriors, because they believed. They believed if given a fair shake the road warriors and dusty roads would kick the horseman's ass 10 out of 10, 10 nights in a row. And they did. And that's what we did. We went out and made what they thought should happen, happen. And that was the beauty of drawing money in those days. 
Well, that's it, boys and girls. Starcade 85, Arn's first pay-per-view, his first major event like this for Jim Crockett Promotions. Just last week, we covered his first major show with the WWF. Next week, we'll be back to our usual every other week routine. It's hashtag Ask Arn Anything. If you've got a follow-up about this show or any other topic, well, go ask it on Twitter right now. At The Arn Show on Twitter is where you'll find our account. And pinned to the top will be an opportunity to ask a question. Just make sure you use that hashtag as well. Hashtag ask Arn anything. Uh, we'll be doing that on the 17th. And on Christmas Eve, we'll be back at you. That's right. We're not taking the day off. And we're going to be talking about coming back to WCW. Uh, that, of course, happens in late 89. We'll talk about why he left the WWF. One of his last matches being Survivor Series 89. And then we'll also include his first pay-per-view back with the promotion, Starcade 89, which is certainly an interesting time in WCW to say the least. Uh, but we want you to give us some feedback. So by all means, leave us a five-star review. If you think we've earned it, hit that subscribe button for free, tell a friend. And if you haven't already pick up a great stocking stuffer for the wrestling fan in your life, go to orangeshirts.com. That's a R N shirts.com. And, uh, be sure to follow us on Twitter. So you can ask your question to Arn himself at the Arn show until next week. He's Arn Anderson. I am at, Hey, Hey, it's Conrad on Twitter. And we'll see you next week right here on Arn only on Westwood one. John brings his skewed sense of humor. Jeff brings tips to cut strokes off your next round together. It's those weekend golf guys. They'll pay a lot of money to PXG and Titleist and Callaway and on and on and on. Right? How many yards do you think you're going to pick up with that extra driver? I think I can get an extra 5 to 10. What if I give you 15 to 20? <laughs> you pay me more. Jeff Smith right? teaches on the sliding scale. <laughs> those weekend golf guys, the podcast, part of the Believe Network. Just search B-L-E-A-V on YouTube or wherever you listen.